As I have been looking at this section in James over this past week, noting the distinction between intelligence and wisdom, between human logic and God's wisdom, between common sense that isn't always so common, and the kind of wisdom that God gives, I came across this illustration that isn't in the category of the wise, but I'd have to put it in the otherwise. A directive was issued by the British Admiralty during the Second World War. They posted this for those who were under their command in relationship to the storage of warheads. It said, this was a note that was, that was, that was written out to the soldiers. It said, it is necessary for technical reasons that these warheads should be stored bottom side up. That is, with the top at the bottom and the bottom at the top. In order that there may be no doubt as to which is the top and which is the bottom for storage purposes, it will be seen that the bottom of each warhead has been labeled with the word top. Does that make sense? Now, I've never been in the military, but it's my understanding this is fairly typical of military logic. I mean, who can follow such instructions? It makes no sense. And one could assume that this was written by fairly intelligent people. It was similar to another notice that was printed in the Lewiston, Idaho Tribune. It said, the crossword puzzle which should have appeared in today's Tribune appeared instead in yesterday's, together with the answer to the puzzle that should have been printed yesterday. Therefore, the puzzle that should have appeared yesterday is in today's Tribune, together with the answer to Wednesday's puzzle. The puzzle for today and the answer to the one that should have been printed yesterday are reprinted. You got that? Again, one would assume it was written and edited by those with at least a high school education and likely passed through a higher educational system. Now, this isn't to knock education per se, but to erase this notion that intelligence equals wisdom, that knowledgeable people are also wise people. James asks the question, James chapter 4, verse 13, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 13, who is wise in understanding among you? And unlike our earlier illustrations of hard-to-understand directions, James wants us to understand the true nature of wisdom. And true to character, James gives it to us straight. There are the wise and the other-than-wise categories we all fall into. James' opening question in verse 13. I hope you have your Bibles open to James chapter 3. His opening question there in verse 13 serves as the next test by which we can measure the genuineness of our faith. That's what James has been doing throughout our time in this book. It's been a call to run our faith through a series of tests. I won't repeat each of those this morning, but instead draw your attention to today's subject and test. What kind of wisdom... What kind of wisdom directs your life? What kind of wisdom do you have? And how can we answer that with with any degree of certainty? I mean, is this wisdom here in the abstract? 
Who is wise and understanding among you, James asks. He hardly gives us time to ponder the question when he provides us with the truest test of whether we fall under the category of the wise or the otherwise. Notice his very simple answer to his question. We find it right at the, right, coming right off the heels of the question. He answers it with four words. Let him show it. You see, a person might stand on his soapbox and infer or declare, I am someone of wisdom and understanding. James, standing in the crowd, listening to the self-proclaimed wise one, would say, oh yeah, show me. Show me. Similar to what James said earlier in James chapter 2 of a person who claims to have faith. His comeback is, was what? Show me. Show me you have faith. True wisdom, like true faith, is observable. Show me your wise. How? Well, James goes on, rest of verse 13. Let him show it, how? By his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. We will know a wise person when we see him or her, not because of his degrees, but because of his deeds. Not because of professional competence, but public conduct. If you want to determine if someone is wise, don't ask for his resume. Don't ask for how many degrees he has underneath his name. Don't ask for his grade point average. James says, look at his life. A man's works, not his words, will tell you if he has true wisdom. Now, it's no accident that this section in James follows James' talk about talking. The tongue can boast of one's wisdom all it wants, but the test is the life is in the life lived. And what will be very obvious is how this wisdom is played out in relationships. You're going to see that thread all the way through here. As a matter of fact, the bottom line truth is this. Wisdom is a lifestyle shown primarily by the way we relate to people. Wisdom is a lifestyle. Wisdom is a lifestyle primarily shown primarily by the way we relate to people. We are how we relate to one another. Listen, you can boast of, uh, of your wisdom all you want. You can see yourself as a wise person. But if it isn't worked out in your relationships, you are not wise. You are otherwise. Wisdom is a lifestyle shown primarily by the way we relate to people. And so God gives us a little wisdom test here. He asks three questions. We, we, he answers those in this passage. What is, the, what is the source? What is the source or the origin? Of these two kinds of wisdom? What is the nature of these two kinds of wisdom? Secondly, the operations, the the outworking. And then thirdly, what is the evidence of of the wisdom? What is the evidence? How does it show itself? What are the results? What is the outcome? What is the source? What is the nature? What is the evidence? That's what we're looking at this morning. First of all, the source. And in verse 15, James identifies the origin of man's wisdom. Follow along with me, verse 15. Such wisdom, and in the NIV it has quotes, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. 
So James says this, this man-made wisdom here does not come down from heaven. It is earthly, meaning of this world. It is unspiritual, meaning it's a natural wisdom. And it, means it, and it says it's of the devil, meaning it's from the pit of hell. Do you see the descending spiral here? It goes from bad to worse. Once we turn from God, once we stop fearing God, we have then lost its wisdom. An increase in knowledge only magnifies the problem. It is, as they would say during World War II, they'd call it a snafu, which stood for, the acronym was Situation Normal, All Followed Up. (laughs) Or as they say in the Pentagon, the word FUB, which is the acronym for Followed Up Beyond Belief. That's where human wisdom gets us. That is why we're in the mess we're in. And like human wisdom that built the Tower of Babel, it only ended in confusion and disorder and every evil practice, which is what James says will be the case at the end of verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, what do you find with this man-made wisdom, with worldly wisdom, with this wisdom of the devil? You will find disorder and every evil practice. Is that what we see today in our world? Yes, that is what we see today in our world. And to top it off, the answer to things being fouled up beyond belief in our society, you know what the answer is? Education. If we can just educate people, provide them with more information, we can turn things around. We are a world preoccupied with education. The reasoning goes something like this. Hear me out. If we can educate people, then we can solve our problems. Think about that. If education was the answer, then people would stop smoking. It would solve teenage pregnancy. If education was the answer, drug dealers would be out of business. Bullying would cease and and people all get along with each other in the workplace. It isn't knowledge. It is wisdom. It is wisdom we need. We need wisdom. And the world continues to make attempts at dealing with the woes of society absent from God. Whatever does not come from God is destined to fail even if it has some short-term success. See, we edge God out over here, and we edge God out a little bit over here, and then we wonder why we're in such a mess. Fub, falled out beyond belief. The only way back The only way forward is by going to the ultimate source of all wisdom, and that is God. The wisdom that James speaks about is coming from heaven. This is the wisdom we need in the church. This is the wisdom we need from our pulpits. This is the wisdom we need at our meetings and in our decision-making, in our discussions, and working through problems. This is the wisdom we need in hoping for spiritual outcomes. And the church has invited all kinds of trouble down through the ages by putting people in positions of leadership who are not wise by biblical standards. And we're in a mess in America. In our churches, we're a mess. Worldly wisdom cannot produce spiritual results. When will we get that? I speak to myself. When will we get that? We must be careful that we're not bringing in the world's wisdom into the church. We must be sure our source is right in handling spiritual matters. 
That's the source. Nature of wisdom is next. The operations of it, the outworking or the process. And see, since the two kinds of wisdom originate from different sources, they're going to operate in opposite ways. And James speaks here uh, in verse 14 of bitter envy and selfish ambition. Follow along. Verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. You're lying about what you think you have. It's not spiritual wisdom at all. You're denying the truth. He says bitter envy. Literally, that word is harsh zeal. Harsh zeal. Now, zeal is good. But when that zeal is not under the control of the Lord, it goes bad. What seemed to be happening in that day is is that there were those likely would-be teachers that James spoke about earlier in in the beginning of chapter 3. There were these would-be teachers that that couldn't stand to see others in possession of a position and influences that they so desired. And that is the very nature of envy. If I could define envy, it would be like this. It is to be resentful of the advantages that are enjoyed by other people. Envy is to be resentful of the advantages that are enjoyed by other people. And I had to stop right there, and I'd ask you to do the same, and just ask, do I resent someone in this church family right now? Do I? Do you resent someone in this church family because they've come between you and your own objectives and your own desires? Are you resentful because of someone else's advantage you wish for yourself? Listen, deal with that. Deal with it. It will eat you up inside. Don't allow envy and its twin selfish ambition motivate you to do what you do. Selfish ambition. Isn't that how the world operates in wisdom? Wisdom of the world measures everything by what is best for me. It's at the core of conflict and relationships, as we're going to see here in a moment. It's at the core of conflict in our marriages and in churches, selfish ambition. What is best for me? That's the core of the American dream. Promote self, elevate self, find yourself, whatever that means. Wisdom of the world just measures it by what is best for me. And James calls us to seek a higher wisdom. Wisdom's wisdom that's not based on what you know, but on what you do with what you know. And the description here that he outlines for us in verse 17, he provides for us a description of heavenly, godly wisdom and how it's to be displayed. And it all revolves around relationships. You miss that, you miss the whole point of verse 17. The one exception might be that first word that he gives us to speak of this wisdom in verse 17 when he says it's pure. And when James speaks of it being pure, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. When he speaks of it being pure, he's referring to a life that is free of contamination. It is is undefiled. It is an unmixed devotion. Purity is the key to all the other qualities of wisdom that he's going to mention here. That's the starting place for attaining wisdom. It's to be pure in our devotion. It's to fear God, as Proverbs tells us, is the beginning of wisdom. See, purity here is the motivation for divine wisdom. It's seeking divine wisdom for the right reasons and not for our own selfish ambitions. So God's wisdom test is, is is it pure? 
But not only is it pure, but we see the next word he says here, the wisdom from above is what? Peace-loving, he says, verse 17. Then peace-loving. That's the idea of being peaceable. Its opposite would be to, to be contentious, or as we saw in verse 17, it would be the opposite of bitter envy and selfish ambition. Now, now I need to point out here, when it speaks of peace, and, and James is going to end this section emphasizing being a peacemaker, but when he speaks of peace, this doesn't mean avoidance of conflict. Some figure that as long as they deny reality or walk away from every problem that comes into their life and just, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to look at that crisis. I see I'm being peaceful. That's not wisdom. That's not wisdom. It's not what he's saying here. Kind of like the couple just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. And someone asked the husband the secret of their longevity and happiness as a couple. Well, the old man drawled, the wife and I had this agreement when we first got married. It went like this. When she was bothered by something, she'd just tell me and get it off her chest. And if I was upset with her about something, I just went off and took a long walk. <laughs> he said, I suppose you could attribute, attribute our happy marriage to the fact that I have largely led an outdoor life. <laughs> Now, there are indeed times we need to take a walk. Some of us would do well at times to do that. But James is not recommending a peace that depends on walking away from conflict. If we walk away, we have to come back and look at it. We mustn't avoid conflict. He's commending a peaceful spirit. It isn't peacekeeping at all costs. James is after, but being a peacemaker that works through the conflict to a healthy resolution. Are you a promoter of peace? Are you a promoter of peace? Or are you argumentative and, and disruptive to peace? It doesn't matter how gifted you are or how knowledgeable. If you are a trouble, if you are troublemaking rather than peacemaking, you are unwise. That's what he says. Third quality of true wisdom, verse 17, it's a, it is considerate. Considerate. This is a difficult word, word to translate. Some have chosen the word gentle. The meaning suggests being fair and generous in our dealings with people. It's to give others the benefit of the doubt. It is the opposite of quarrelsome. Pure, peace-loving, considerate. Then we come to the word submissive. <laughs> submissive. Mm. You hear that word, and you, everything inside of you goes, I don't like that word. Causes a reaction, does it not? I don't have to submit to you. The idea just brings out the rebellion in us. The word James uses here means to yield to persuasion. Very interesting. Yield to persuasion. One who is wise is willing to listen to reason and counsel and to someone else's perspective. It isn't saying we have our feet planted in midair when it comes to what we believe or that we have no convictions. It means that I am open to listening to someone else's viewpoint and rather than be stubborn, willing to be persuaded by what is good and best. It is opposite to our minds being made up that we will not see things in any other way, and we will not submit to anybody else's wisdom. Again, I had to pause and ask this question. Do I go into meetings, and do I go into situations with my mind's mind already made up? 
You don't sit there with your arms folded, all rigid and tight. Tell people sometimes show up in my office to have some counseling. Go ahead. Yeah, we're going to get somewhere. This should be real productive. Unwilling to listen to what someone else might have to say. The more rigid you are, the less hope there is for successful resolution. How rigid are you? How rigid am I? I mean, is there a situation right now that's calling you to be teachable and open to someone else's point of view? Because wisdom is worked out in our relationships. It's a lifestyle shown primarily by the way we relate to people. I got to go on. James goes on to say, full of mercy. He already hit on this in chapter 2. I won't spend a lot of time there other than to say once again, when we see the word mercy, we have to praise God that he does not give us what we deserve. God's wisdom is marked by mercy. Wisdom from above is also described as full of good fruit. He's going to speak of this good fruit as he summarizes all of this in verse 18. But the thought here is that where we are led by wisdom from above, it will lead to, lead to every, sort of good, every sort of good deed and good work. And then James adds two other descriptions of godly wisdom and speaking of it as being impartial and sincere. That means to be undivided in our minds and untainted by hypocrisy. See, God's wisdom is not two-faced. It's not one thing on Sunday and another thing on Monday. It isn't one thing as we gather with the saints uh, on Sunday morning and then another thing as we go away on a business trip or or go away on vacation or or in the privacy of our home. It's not two-faced. As a country singer put it, he's a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction. That should not be said of a follower of Jesus Christ, one who claims to know him and walk in his ways. A truly wise person doesn't play act. He doesn't wear a mask. He is what he says he is. In other words, what you see is what you get. God's wisdom tests. Do do you pass as one who's wise? Well, let's see. So we make our way down through this description of wisdom from above. You can insert your name. Brian is pure. Brian is peace-loving. Brian is considerate. Brian is submissive. All the way down the list. As we look around the church for people of wisdom, and we even choose our leaders for their wisdom, what should we be looking for? The qualities mentioned here in verse 17. Is that where we go? James then gives a summary statement as to what he was just describing. Let me read verse 18. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. How do we determine what kind of wisdom we have? Well, James separates the two kinds of wisdom by their fruits. And so we come to the evidence, the outcome, the results. And I want to look at the negative side of this, and then I want to look at the positive side, results of God's wisdom displayed in our life. What has world's wisdom led to? Let me read chapter 4, verse 1. There are no chapter breaks, by the way, when this letter was written. This is where world's wisdom leads us. Chapter 4, verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Wow! You read this and you go, they must have had quite the business meetings. (laughs) 
They were fighting and and quarreling and doing more fighting and more quarreling to the point of killing each other. Now, I don't know how literal to take that. But Jesus said, if we hate our brother, it is as if we committed murder. And how many of us haven't, you know, had fallen to the old looks can kill? And words are like missiles. And stories of fights and quarrels are all too common and that the caricature of a feuding church is found everywhere. As a young father learned from his children, hearing commotion in his backyard, he looked outside, he saw his daughter and several playmates in a heated, heated quarrel. He finally decided to intervene. He said, why are you fighting? And his daughter replied, but dad, we're just playing church. <laughs> yeah, I don't know to smile, laugh, or cry. I mean, it brings a smile to our face, but the tra- its tragic note is firmly rooted in many Christian communities. I recall someone comparing the church to Noah's Ark. He said, if it weren't for the storm on the outside, we couldn't stand the stench on the inside. Yeah, exactly. And fighting and quarreling reeks to the high heaven, to the nostrils of God. Fights and quarrels are the results of earthly wisdom. Why? Go that way. Life is very short. There's no time for fussing and fighting, my friends, as John Lennon put it. No biblical scholar, but he was spot on. There's no, why, why are we messing with that? Time is short. There was a book out last year entitled How to Argue and Win Every Time. This is human wisdom for you. I have no interest in reading it, but apparently many others did read it because it was on the national bestseller list. And according to the author, we were born to win arguments. And the problem is that we've been locked up by parents, preachers, and teachers. And a quote from the book says, when we give ourselves permission to argue, we become like born-again gladiators. Wow, that's the wisdom of the world. And James asked, what causes fights and quarrels among you? The answer to James' question as to the cause of this infighting is, is what he says next. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Blocked goals. Blocked goals, especially when we think them necessary for survival, generate frustration and then anger. Blocked goals. And isn't this the answer to all questions about conflict in the church? The problem lies within. From the desires that battle within you. Within me. It's safe to say that the person who's constantly disruptive to peace has something else going on inside. The great preacher of many years ago, Henry Ward Beecher, had a clock in his church that didn't keep good time. It was always either too fast or too slow. That will drive any preacher nuts, trust me. And month after month, he fiddled with it, trying to rectify the problem. And soon it became a standard topic of conversation in the church until finally in desperation, he put a sign over the clock that said, don't blame the hands, the trouble lies deeper. (laughs) I like that. That is true. That is true of life. Don't blame the hands. The trouble lies deeper. And until we deal with the deeper trouble of the spiritual realm, there'll be no way to set the hands right permanently. We've got to deal with what's on the inside. Because the animosity comes from the inside. 
comes from that bitter envy and selfish ambition that competes with everybody else's envy and selfish ambition. And so often we come with a presenting problem. We ask God to fix it when the issue goes much deeper. Or we might pray and ask God, but the one who sees our hearts, the God who knows what is in our hearts, won't play that game and grant us our request. Instead, he wants to do the work on the inside. So verse 18, the results, the evidence of true wisdom, it says peacemakers are sowing peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. Does that describe you? I mean, if peacemaker is over here and troublemaker is over here, where are you? Where are you in that continuum? If we are wise, then this is the fruit that will come out of our lives, a harvest of righteousness. Listen, the fruit doesn't make us, the fruit reveals us. Fruit doesn't make the tree what it is. It reveals what the tree is. It isn't the apple on the tree that makes the tree an apple tree. No, that apple shows us it's an apple tree. I say this because the last thing I would want you to do with a list like this in verse 17, I wouldn't want you to go away and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Here's my plan. I'm going to start this week. and I'm going to work on each one of those qualities of wisdom. And then when I get that one fixed, I'm going to go to the next one. And if I can just kind of sort of stick them on my life like ornaments on a Christmas tree, that will make me a wise person. Wrong. Not true. How can I be this wise person that James describes here? It is to know that I am not any of these things in and of myself. Who is the embodiment of these things? Jesus Christ. It is only as Jesus' life takes up residence in my life and he lives his life through me can I ever show the fruit of true wisdom. It is only as Christ invades our lives. It's only as Christ gets complete hold of me and lives in me and through me that fruit's going to come out of my life. That's the only way we can do it. The starting place is not focusing on the fruit, but focusing on Christ who is the vine. It's been illustrated this way. It'd be like me putting on the screen a painting by Picasso or Leonardo da Vinci or or Michelangelo. I then have you stare for a little while at that painting that's on the screen and challenge you to go this week and paint like that. We come back next week together and we put our paintings and your painting and my painting on the screen. Now, now some of us would do better than others, but you wouldn't be able to paint like Picasso by staring at some painting done by Picasso. What if Picasso could live in your life? Hmm. We read a list like this from James and know that, that Jesus was all of this. He's the epitome of true wisdom. And to throw a picture up on the screen and say, go and try your best to live like Jesus. And then next week, we'll come and see how you did. You can't do it that way. It's like sticking ornaments on a Christmas tree. But what if Jesus could come and, and live in our lives? And if you know Christ, he does. And what if Jesus could empower and enable us and live his life through us? If you know Jesus, that's possible. 
He wants that. What a difference he can make, and only then can we live a life like Jesus and live out this wisdom. Loved ones, we need Christ. We need Christ. As we move forward, we need his wisdom. There is, only, there is a wisdom that can only be found on our face before God and say, I need that. I need Jesus living in my life. Husbands, you need to cry out to God and ask God for wisdom. Dads, you need to cry out and ask God for wisdom. Wives, moms, young people, wherever you are in life as a servant of the Lord, we need to get on our face before God and cry out for God's wisdom because we need his wisdom if we're going to move forward. And if we're not convinced of that, then we are in deep, deep trouble. We can't manufacture this. It's only as he lives his life through us. That's what we're celebrating around the communion table. That's why we're having communion after the sermon this morning. As a response to Christ died for us, Christ lives in us. He lives in us. And this wisdom is possible to be lived out through our lives. I ask you, we just pause and ask God to search your heart. He knows your heart. Have him search your heart and say, how badly do I think I really need wisdom? How badly do I really think I need Jesus? Which wisdom am I operating under? Will you ask God to search your heart on that? I want you to turn your hymn books. We're going to sing this one verse. We're going to come back to it again. But 438, this is our prayer this morning. I'm not going to pray it. You're going to pray it. 438.